Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Edward Ruloff had a problem. He needed to get rid of the wooden chest he had just filled, but it was so heavy that he could barely lift it, much less carry it anywhere. He turned to a neighbor hoping for a little help. The neighbor agreed and loaned Roloff a horse and carriage and even helped him load that 100-plus pound chest. To satisfy the neighbor's curiosity, Roloff explained that a relative had come and picked up his wife and infant daughter to take them on a trip, but the trunk had been in that guy's carriage and it had to be left behind to make room for passengers. Roloff wanted to tail the others to reunite the chest with its owner, but he didn't have his own horse and carriage. Hence, the hit-up. The neighbor was happy to help. The two waved goodbye, and after a bit, Ruloff returned the carriage with a thanks. It would be six full weeks before people started to realize that ever since that day, no one had seen Ruloff's wife and infant daughter. The relative he had mentioned to his neighbor never surfaced, and Ruloff himself had told different stories to others who asked after his family. People in Ithaca, New York, where Ruloff worked as a botanical doctor, started to get suspicious. But Ruloff was smart, with a brain that literally went down in history books. And he proved to be one of the country's smartest and most slippery criminals. As journalist Kate Winkler Dawson said, By the time this story ends, Edward Ruloff has left in his wake uh, just a horrible amount of misery and destruction. Ruloff's given name was John Edward Howard Rulofson. He was born in 1819 to a farming family in New Brunswick, Canada. Growing up, he had a father who was a very hard worker. He had little of in some ways. He thought he was a good provider, but he really, really connected with his mother, who was named Priscilla, who was incredibly, incredibly smart and very well-read and encouraged all three of her sons to be well-read. Dawson is a journalism professor at the University of Texas in Austin. I reached out to her because she's given some talks about Edward Ruloff and wrote an article about him for CrimeReads.com. But it turned out that when I reached her, she was just about to drop a new project. And I have a new podcast called Tenfold More Wicked, And the first season is about a killer from the 1800s named Edward Ruloff. And I've studied Ruloff for probably five or six years at this point, quite a long time. Ruloff was one of three boys growing up in a stable but not well-off family. When Ruloff was five, things got even sketchier because Ruloff's father died, leaving his mother a widow. Because women were widely thought to be helpless, small-brained creatures back then, Ruloff's uncle took over the family's finances and gave Priscilla something of a stipend. But Priscilla was no dummy. She raised Ruloff and his two brothers to be bookworms. 
By focusing on education, she helped her boys rise above their social status. Their smarts got them admitted to pretty elite schools. She might have been poor, but all three of her sons were smarty pants. I think it was the only woman he had really ever respected or loved. He said, essentially, any semblance of intelligence that my brothers and I had were directly related to his mother and no one else. Ruloff loved reading anything he could get his hands on and was particularly enamored with words, like literal words. He thought language was just fascinating. He was so fascinated, in fact, that he became a polyglot, learning to speak at least half a dozen languages, including French, Greek, Latin, and German. When it came to languages, he was almost entirely self-taught. On the whole, the three boys seemed well-bred, even though they came from a pretty humble beginning. But Ruloff was a troublemaker straight away. He set fires and stole things. He was smart enough to get out of trouble for some of his antics, but not all of them. By the time he graduated his elite school, he had a pretty impressive rap sheet. This doesn't seem to be from any lapses in moral education from his mother, either. His brothers were upstanding citizens, after all, and so was she. There was just something in Ruloff's makeup that seemed different. He was certainly one of those people who, no matter how much academic stimulation you gave them, it just it wasn't enough to stop him from seeking sort of self-destructive behavior. Ruloff's dream wasn't to become an infamous criminal, however. He knew he was smart, and he felt he had a gift he should share with the world. And when Edward graduated from this elite school, he went to his uncle and said, I would like to be an academic. I would like to be like an English professor, languages professor someday, so I need to go to university. And his uncle said no. He was just a big believer in having sort of a solid blue-collar background. He said you could be a printer, you know, you could be a farmer. There were better trades as far as his uncle was concerned. And that just sent Edward Ruloff into a tailspin after that. With college out of reach, Ruloff seemed to lean into his worst impulses. He got by with working odd jobs and committing petty theft. And he continued to get away with a good bit of it, simply because he didn't seem like a criminal. But in truth, he was actually a pretty sloppy one. So no matter how good he might seem to some on the surface, he got busted a few times before he moved from Canada to New York in 1842. That year, Ruloff met a boatmaster and farmer who regularly hired hungry men looking for work. Ruloff stood out among those men. For starters, he was better educated than most. Also, he gave himself an exotic edge by pretending to be not from Canada, but from Germany. Because he spoke fluent German, he could feign a German accent pretty convincingly. And he was uh, very mysterious, very well-spoken. He spoke many different languages. And in 1842, he shows up in this village and sort of, uh, you know, inserts himself into a very prominent family uh, called the Scuts, who live on a farm called Brookfield Farm, which is in Ithaca. And the Scott family was very uh, well-known. Ruloff seemed smart and reliable, plus he had a wide chest to boot. So Henry Scott, the boatmaster, invited him to work on his family's farm. He met Henry's parents, John and Hannah, as well as Henry's siblings. He wasn't embraced entirely as a new family member, but he did impress the crew. 
He wrote well and seemed learned. He did plenty of hard labor on the farm, but it was soon clear that he was really more of an academic than a farmer. So Henry helped Ruloff open a school. Local students signed up to take classes from him. One of his students was Henry's teenage sister, Harriet. She was apparently very striking with pale skin and hazel eyes. She was both flirtatious and naive, which Ruloff found a compelling combination. Plenty of men had shown interest in her, and Father John would have signed off on a lot of those guys, but not Ruloff. Ironically, John wasn't thrilled with Ruloff's supposed German roots. Even though the Scots hailed from the Netherlands and, like Ruloff, had risen from humble beginnings, they held Ruloff's social class and immigrant status against him. John wanted his daughter to marry an American. Also, the longer he knew Ruloff, the less stable the guy seemed to be. He had an ego that could be off-putting, plus a jealous streak that worried John. When Harriet returned Ruloff's interest, he became possessive and manipulative. John tried to keep Ruloff away from his daughter, but to no avail. She'd fallen in love. The two were married in December 1843. Getting married immediately calmed Ruloff's jealousy. Just kidding. That's never how it works. This is a very difficult marriage. Actually, from the, unfortunately, from the wedding day, there was a cousin who Harriet was close with, a man named Dr. Henry Bull, who apparently was very good looking and a very successful physician. And Edward claimed that he and Harriet were having an affair. Ruloff tried to get Harriet's older brother, William, to banish Dr. Bull from the family's farm and functions. But William said, no way. And if you keep asking, you'll be the one who's banished. This pissed Ruloff off, which is a tough thing to say. He quietly stored away that anger, though it would come out eventually. William's warning, of course, did nothing to quiet Ruloff's jealousy. I mean, this guy was so jealous that when 19th century newspapers reported about him, they mentioned how jealous he was. According to one newspaper story, he repeatedly accused Harriet of, quote, improper intimacy with Dr. Bull, end quote. He supposedly got so enraged that a couple of times he beat her. Harriet and Ruloff, Edward Ruloff, had kind of a contentious marriage always. There was lots of fighting, but he was a good provider. And sometimes he could behave, which is also very typical of somebody with psychopathy. He could control his temper if he wanted to. It can be tough for women to leave these situations now. And it was even tougher back then. And wives weren't so much equals in a marriage as they were property. And Ruloff had been clever. Soon after they married, he moved her 10 miles away to Lansing, New York, a town in Tompkins County. Ruloff had gotten a teaching job there. Moving 10 miles wouldn't be a big deal today, but to a woman in the 1840s, you might as well have moved to the other side of the state. Ruloff didn't have a carriage, so it's not like Harriet could just hop over to her folks' house for an afternoon. She was completely removed from them. So in effect, he was absolutely doing the abusive husband, manipulation, isolating her. He was stew every time she was around her family, and the family hated him. I mean, they really did. Soon, Harriet learned she was pregnant. She had no idea that this would prove to be a deadly turning point. 
Edward Ruloff might have been a smart man, but he struggled at first to find his footing professionally. It seems teaching kids wasn't fulfilling enough. So he dabbled in law and studied alternative medicine. That field had been pioneered not long earlier by a guy named Samuel Thompson, a self-taught herbalist and botanist. You didn't need a fancy medical degree to practice what Ruloff was doing. From the 19th century onwards, the chemical laboratory began to use plants as a source of medicine. And in 1803, uh, narcotic alkaloids were first isolated from the opium poppy. This is by the mental health herbalist who posted a couple of history of herbal medicine videos online. He explained that Thompson believed all illness resulted from cold, so he used herbs that helped create internal heat, like cayenne. His herbal system of medicine in many ways was an earlier form of naturopathy, in which ill health is treated with uh, naturally known food, sunlight, fresh air, natural remedies. The thinking was that traditional medicine was too harsh. And if you consider that this was an era of calomel and bloodletting, that makes sense. If you're not familiar with those two, they could involve mercury poisoning and leeches, respectively. Botanical physicians eschewed those supposedly state-of-the-art treatments and used herbs and roots instead. Considering that we now know blood loss and deadly poisons are kind of bad for humans, it makes sense that some patients saw more success with the botany approach. You wouldn't go to a botanist to set a broken arm, but diseases like dysentery and cholera were rampant in this era. And really, you had as good a shot at surviving with leech treatment and lobelia. That's a plant that makes you vomit. Just as he'd done when he was a bachelor, Ruloff bounced around jobs after his marriage. In the winter of 1844, he worked as a clerk in Ithaca for a few months. He and Harriet lived in a boarding house. Harriet was very attached to her family, though, and at some point she returned to her father's house. And her parents were probably thrilled to have her back. But the return was short-lived. The wedge between Ruloff and his in-laws continued to grow. One of her brothers walked in, I think Ephraim walked in, one time when he was smacking her around, and Ephraim said, you're either going to stop and you can take her home, or you are going to leave her with us, but you're not going to do this any longer. Which, I mean, frankly, is pretty extraordinary because in the 1800s, once you married a woman, she was essentially your property. And the families didn't step in. And the Scut brothers just hated him so much that they felt compelled to say, we will take her off your hands. We have had enough. And, and Edward promised he was going to be better, which, of course, he wasn't. Harriet gave birth to a baby daughter on April 12, 1845. She and her family hoped that fatherhood would temper Ruloff in ways that marriage hadn't. The baby was named Priscilla, after Ruloff's mother. Despite not particularly liking Ruloff, the Scott family still more or less respected him, or at least respected his brain. In June 1845, Harriet's older brother, William, begged him to use his botanical medicine to try to save his dying wife and newborn daughter. The two were sick with some kind of bacterial infection, and they were quickly becoming listless. Ruloff agreed to travel from Lansing to Ithaca to treat his in-laws, but on the ride over, he reportedly made it clear to his mother-in-law, Hannah, that he really didn't care if William's wife lived or died. Hannah later said, quote, It was wholly indifferent to him whether she got well. William had misused him about Dr. Bull, 
and that thing would yet mount to the shedding of blood, end quote. Hannah should have seen this comment as a red flag, but Ruloff was so prone to being melodramatic that she wrote it off as more of that. He might be a jerk, but she had no reason to think he was a killer. When Ruloff failed to heal William's wife and daughter, he didn't seem very upset about it. First, the days-old daughter died after Ruloff's examination. Then the mother. William was, of course, grief-stricken, but he wasn't upset with Ruloff. Even Hannah, who had heard Ruloff's ominous indifference, thought he had done all he could. And after all, it wasn't uncommon in the 19th century for mother and infant to die in childbirth, and the two had been fading long before Ruloff arrived. Asking his brother-in-law to try and save them had been a Hail Mary pass at best. Besides, the family knew that as smart as Ruloff was, Ruloff's heart wasn't really in medicine. In fact, he really didn't have an endgame of becoming either a doctor or a lawyer, even though he fancied himself both by this time. What he really wanted to be was an academic. But what he wanted was to be a professor or to work for, uh, you know, an elite boys' school. So he was offered a prestigious job as a principal at an all-boys academy in Ohio. And this was his dream. And this is what he wanted. He was offered this job as principal a few weeks after the deaths of his wife's relatives. He announced the big news to Harriet and told her they'd be moving to Ohio. And she said, absolutely not. I have zero interest in going anywhere with you. And if you're going to go, then I'm not going with you. This sparked a huge fight. And while we'll never know exactly what happened next, it's pretty clear Ruloff killed his wife and daughter that night. This is when, as I described in the opening, he asked his neighbor to borrow a horse and carriage to haul a chest that just so happened to be big enough to haul two bodies. He traveled to Cuyahoga Lake, took the chest on a boat out to the middle, and his wife and daughter were never heard from again. And then he was hungry, so he went to his brother-in-law's house. So he had just killed Will Scutt's sister, young sister, and Will Scutt's niece. And he had killed Will Scutt's wife and child. And he goes to his house, and uh, his sister Jane was there. And, you know, a lot of the Scutts were there, and he has breakfast. He was sweaty and red-faced and nervous. The Scutts had no reason to be suspicious at this point, Though Ruloff did do something odd. William Scutt had given his sister a gold ring as a gift once, and Harriet wore that ring every day. But this day, at breakfast, Ruloff pulled out the gold ring and handed it to William, saying, you probably want this. William, confused, said, no, give that back to Harriet. After breakfast, Ruloff returned the horse and carriage to his neighbor, who noted that Ruloff still had the chest, but now it was light enough for him to carry on his own. When Harriet's family started asking about her, Ruloff said she was between the lakes. Which was the term that locals used and still use to some extent to talk about going to visit these little towns in between the Great Lakes. Harriet's friends asked after her too, but Ruloff was inconsistent in his replies. According to a newspaper account, he told one that she was between the lakes, Another, that she was in Pennsylvania, and others still, that she was in Madison, Ohio. The story read, quote, Being pressed in the matter, he wrote a letter to her directed to the latter place, end quote. In that letter, he asked her to write her friends to let them know she was okay. But still, there was no word from Harriet. After about six weeks of this, 
Two of Harriet's brothers got fed up. They wanted proof. Ruloff said, look, you're worrying for nothing. We're moving to Ohio for my new job, and she and the baby are already there settling in. This did not placate the brothers, so Ruloff tried to appease them by leading them to the Ohio town where his wife and daughter supposedly were. He managed to ditch them along the way. But the brothers stayed the course and arrived in town and then began asking questions. It seemed no one had seen any new woman arrive with a newborn child. The brothers caught up with Ruloff, hiding out on a steamer filled with German immigrants, and they handcuffed him. They were determined to bring him to prison. At some point, Ruloff offered them a deal. Ephraim dragged him back to New York, and they're sitting on the steamer, and Edward says, I have a deal for you. I'll just jump overboard and kill myself. I don't want to go back and be hanged. And Ephraim says, you know, what is, where is my sister and my niece? And Edward doesn't have a good answer. And so everybody on the ship would prefer to hang him because at this point, everybody knows who Edward Ruloff is. But Ephraim says, no, I believe in the law and we're going to put this guy on trial. Soon enough, Ephraim would regret the decision. And to the Scots, it was obvious that Ruloff had killed his wife and daughter. But the legal system in America was still pretty new in the 1840s. And this is about four decades after the country's very first recorded murder trial. There had never been a case without a body. Even today, those cases are tricky as hell. They can be done. I've seen a few convictions myself. But back in 1846, the thinking was, hell, if we don't have a body, how can we prove a crime's even been committed? Because there was no legal precedent set in America, Ruloff pointed to precedent set in Great Britain by 17th century barrister Lord Matthew Hale, which said 400 years earlier what Taylor Swift just wrote a song about. No body, no crime. The Scots tried to shore up the case by searching for the remains of Harriet and Priscilla. They were sure Ruloff had dumped them in Cuyahoga Lake. They had dragged the lake. The Scots paid for it. It was $100,000 for them to, to drag the lake, and with no luck. Still... Ruloff went on trial for murder. He didn't testify in his defense, but he did serve as his own defense lawyer, which history has shown time and again to be a brilliant idea. There's a centuries-old adage, the man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Ruloff didn't win the case, but he didn't totally lose either. Because there was no corpse, and thus no cause of death and no proof of homicide, the jury just couldn't convict him of murder but he was convicted of kidnapping. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and during that time, he kept incredibly busy. For starters, he wrote an appeal challenging his conviction, but that wasn't all. He began formulating a theory on language that he was sure would revolutionize the world. The Scott family surely wanted Edward Ruloff, a man they were absolutely certain was a killer, to rot in prison. But for all his faults, Ruloff was not a lazy guy. Auburn State Prison was not a good prison at the time. It was very draconian. But he was incredibly productive. He made a lot of money because he became a proficient carpet designer and he was able to save tons of money. He bought books and papers. He read, and this is where he came up with this theory 
of language that was really kind of pivotal in his life. And it's what drove him. And it was his obsession. And it's kind of the the way he became who he was. As Ruloff made money and wrote theories in prison, the scuts stewed on the outside. They were furious with the sentence he'd gotten, and they had public opinion on their side. Ruloff had been newspaper fodder, and most readers straight up hated the guy. He definitely had a charming side that won some folks over in person, but he did not translate well in print at all. And he is like the Hannibal Lecter of the 1800s. All the newspapers paint him as this child killer, wife killer monster. As Ruloff's sentence neared its end, the Scuts worked to convince the prosecutor to level new charges against him. They couldn't charge him with Harriet's murder again, of course, double jeopardy and all. But the first trial hadn't included charges related to Priscilla, the baby. So the family was working to convince the prosecutor to charge Ruloff with murder in that case instead. Meanwhile, this suspected killer and convicted kidnapper was an oddity in prison. Officials were used to criminals. They'd even seen a few murderers. But they'd never seen anyone like Ruloff. He could switch personalities on a dime. I believe Edward Ruloff had psychopathy. I believe he had antisocial personality disorder, which a lot of people like to throw around as psychopath, but that's really what it is, is antisocial personality disorder. Despite Ruloff's unpredictable personality and obvious penchant for violent crime, officials decided it would be a waste for them not to tap Ruloff's smarts. I mean, after all, it's around this time in American history that a real emphasis was starting to be put on education. So the adults in town entrusted him to tutor their children. Not only did local law enforcement sign off on this, but they even took part. One of Ruloff's pupils was a young man named Al Jarvis, who was the undersheriff's son. Ephraim Scott heard about this and went to the undersheriff and said, you are nuts. Don't let this kid be around him. He is evil. And the undersheriff didn't listen. Ruloff seduced Jarvis intellectually, and he also seduced Jarvis's mother, the undersheriff's wife, physically. They were both so smitten with him that they broke him out of prison. From this point, it became his life's mission to get his theory about the origin of human language out into the world. That theory eventually took the form of a book called Method in the Formation of Language. He believed there was a pattern to human language. And in that way, this was a million-dollar idea in the 1800s in linguistic circles. And because of this pattern, you know, you could teach a Frenchman Italian almost instantly. Now, there is no pattern in that way. This It's not real. But it was enough of a hoax to convince people and for Edward to convince himself Ruloff was using a pseudonym, what with being a fugitive and all, and took on a new fictional persona named James Nelson. He schemed his way into teaching languages at a university in Pennsylvania. He tried to take the scheme further by finagling a full-time faculty position, but the college president said no to that because there were no openings. But he said, hey, there is a spot at a university in North Carolina. So he got a formal offer, even though he is this killer on the run. And he starts to head to North Carolina when he receives a letter from Al Jarvis, the teenager who he had convinced to let him go free. And Al Jarvis, who was this sweet 16-year-old when he met Edward Ruloff, says, we are now destitute. My dad kicked me out and kicked my mother out for having an affair with you. 
And if you don't help us financially, I will slit your throat, which seems out of character. But I mean, once wow. you've made a turn, you've made a turn. And Edward really influenced him. Probably sensing that his new identity wasn't as foolproof as he had hoped, Ruloff bailed on the North Carolina job and robbed a jewelry store instead. He got caught, but managed to talk his way out of it and walked. Then he landed in New York City, where he got a job as a burglar. Jarvis, the undersheriff's son who had helped him escape years earlier, became his partner. Apparently, turning the teen into a full-blown criminal was how he planned to help out the kid and his mom financially. Jarvis, in turn, connected Ruloff with another convict named William Dexter. Even as the trio lived the lives of criminals, Ruloff still worked to get his language theory accepted. He was certain his findings were absolutely genius, and he would revolutionize the field of philology, that's the study of the history of language, using yet another alias, this one a supposed Oxford professor. He wrote the fledgling American Philological Association and announced that he'd be offering his book for sale for the bargain basement price of half a million dollars. That's about 9.5 million dollars today. For some reason, nobody bit. About this time, Jarvis, Dexter, and Ruloff decided to rob a dry goods store. On August 18, 1870, they broke into a place called Halbert Brothers. This is from a public television show. Unaware that two store clerks were sleeping in a room above the store, they began to rob the establishment. Interrupted by the workers, Ruloff shot and killed one clerk and brutally stabbed the other. In reality, it was a little more dramatic than this. When the clerks woke up, they managed to catch one of the burglars. It's not clear which one they caught, but the other two heard that guy's cries for help and ran back. Frederick Merrick, one of the two clerks, fired his gun but missed. The burglars returned fire and didn't miss. Merrick was shot in the head and died instantly. The burglars ran and apparently jumped in Chenango River, aiming to swim across to safety. Turned out, they weren't all equals when it came to swimming, and the bodies of two of the burglars were found, waterlogged, floating in the river the next day. It was Dexter and Jarvis, the latter being the once nice sheriff's son who had made the deadly mistake of befriending Ruloff in jail. Whatever charisma had drawn Jarvis to Ruloff ultimately cost the kid's parents their marriage, and Jarvis, his life. After police fished the burglars' corpses from the river, the clerk who survived the shootout ID'd them as the men who'd shot at him the night before. But he also warned, hey, there was a third guy, too. At the scene, police had found a crucial clue— Somehow during the scuffle at the dry goods store, Ruloff lost his shoes, and it just so happened that his left foot was deformed in a way that his shoe was modified to accommodate. So when a shoeless Ruloff was spotted wandering around town, and when he had no good answer for what he was up to, he was arrested. If the shoe fits, you can't acquit. Ruloff was found guilty of Merrick's murder and sentenced to death. He appealed the sentencing and even had people arguing on his behalf that it would be a shame to kill someone with a brain like his. But despite a few delays, the sentence ultimately stood. On May 18, 1871, 
Ruloff walked to the gallows where a noose was tied around his neck. His neck didn't break in the drop, so it took 15 agonizing minutes for him to choke to death. A news story read, quote, He died as he had lived, impudent, blasphemous, hypocritical, profane, and intolerably vile. In his last moments, he spurned the proffers of instruction and consolation from the scriptures. He died, almost literally, with horrid oaths upon his tongue and infamous curses on his lips, a consummate mountebank. He carried out his unblushing effrontery to the last, pretending to be affected with profound regret for the huge and irreparable loss the world must experience by his death before the completion of his marvel of a book on language. But the world existed before he was born, and it still exists after his death, and it will probably survive the loss of all that his charlatanry could confer on it, end quote. The county where Ruloff was hanged kept some souvenirs, which are still in a vault to this day. He was bound by these shackles and wore this hood as he was led to the executioner to be hanged till dead, forever taking his gruesome place in history and offering up a hellish mystery within the vault. Ruloff probably would have taken some comfort in knowing that the thing about himself he valued the most would, in fact, be preserved. Once he was finally executed, they cut off his head and they examined his brain, and it turned out to be the second largest and heaviest brain in the world. And Ruloff was right. His brain was important, though not quite in the way he thought it was. There was the belief among white elite neurologists that the men who had, you know, the most intelligence, the most morals particularly, would have the biggest brains. So when they crack open this degenerate's skull and see how big his brain is, it doesn't look like there's a major abnormality, like there's no tumor, there's no nothing that points to why he would have done all of this then it defied all logic to them. And it was very, very controversial at the time. These findings were made by a doctor named Bert Greenwilder, who actually bought Ruloff's brain to study it. Edward Ruloff was the very first brain purchased in the first brain collection in America, which was the beginning of neuroscience in America. Wilder was an autonomist who collected brains. By comparing the brains of different people, he learned some important truths, like that white men do not have bigger brains than women and people of color. I mean, he had the literal brains to prove it. He took Ruloff's brain, the brain of a mixed-race woman, the brain of an elite white philosopher, and the brain of someone diagnosed with mental illness. Wilder showed that structurally, they were all pretty much identical. And he spoke at the very first, the inaugural meeting of the NAACP. And it was kind of electrifying because it, he was the first person to say that this is, the brains of people of color are not inferior. Wilder added more and more brains to his collection, which is housed at Cornell University a century and a half later. Wilder Brain Collection, it's been at Cornell for uh, over a century. It was started by Bert Green Wilder, whose brain is uh, at the center um, of this collection right here. A lot of, especially elites, were uh, starting to form circles where they pledged to donate their brains 
uh, once they die. I guess there's a sense that if you keep your brain preserved, then in some sense you're living on. Ruloff has a special place in the collection. So among the academics, there's one serial killer, Edward Ruloff. Uh, he supposedly has the biggest brain in this, in this collection. To research this story, I read the contemporary newspaper accounts and would have read Kate Winkler Dawson's book on the case, but it hasn't come out yet. Big thanks to her for taking the time to talk to me. And if you want a deeper dive into the Ruloff story, be sure to check out her podcast, Tenfold More Wicked. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>